And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast, where we're about two weeks late to it, but I still wanted to do it anyway, even though our next guest has basically done Kimmel and Seth Meyers and probably Conan's podcast promoting his incredible book about the 1990s New York Knicks, Blood in the Garden, from Sports Illustrated, Chris Herring. How are you, sir? I'm doing okay, Zach. How are you? I'm good. Now, I told you when I got a draft of this book, I don't know, six months ago. By the way, your publisher just keeps sending me. I have four copies of this book now. I've given away three of them to my friends who are Nick fans. I, like I, and then another one came. But when I, when I got a draft of this book six months ago, I said to you over email or text, I can't remember, this book is going to change your life. Has it changed your life yet? Uh, it, it, I think it's in the process of doing it, which is part of the weirdest thing because it's it's happening very fast uh i feel incredibly incredibly grateful but i mean you know me on a personal level people that know me on a personal level it's 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 been really really strange and there are a lot of people i haven't even gotten back to yet just because it's 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 an overwhelming in the best way but it's a really overwhelming feeling and i do think i'm starting to see some of the stuff that you're talking about just with all sorts in all sorts of ways but it's it's been a huge blessing, and I'm uh, I'm just really really grateful. Are you Spike Lee's like third best friend now? First best friend, like what's what's your current relationship with Spike? Have you gone out to drinks with Spike Lee? Are you going to get a cameo in the next Spike Lee movie? I mean, you and him. I mean, it's 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 your your friends now. No no drinks. Uh, I I haven't had drinks with him. I don't drink much. Uh, but he he took me to a couple of games. Uh, he he called me. Well, first of all, he read the book like in one day and wanted me to know that. He called me the next day. We spoke for a couple hours. He wanted to know all the ins and outs of why I reported it the way I did, how I knew certain things that I did, um, why he didn't know about the book. Uh, and like he was like, why didn't you call me? I was like, I, I did. He was like, wait, when? And uh, I think it was one of those things where you know a publicist kind of tried to be a proxy figure out kind of like whether Spike would do this interview or not. Um, anybody that knows Spike even decently, I think knows that he is – very very pro-black and i think that when he really i think i don't know that his person knew that i was a, a young black man doing this book but spike was kind of frustrated that somehow he was t i was told no on his behalf uh, because he's like i absolutely would have talked to you for it but he's like ah it doesn't matter now the book's great so he loved it he had all sorts of questions about it um we we went to a couple games on consecutive days actually one st john's in georgetown uh, we're at the Garden, and then the day after that, the Knicks played against the Hornets, uh, which is just crazy to think. Were about. you were you were you sitting next to Spike Lee at the game? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was asking me all sorts of questions about Miles Bridges after he went out for twenty in the first quarter. He's like, "Is he this good all the time?" And Terry Rozier, Chris, I got to I got to stop the puck. I can't even I can't have you on anymore. <laughs> I can't. I didn't. I I. It's over between us, Chris. You sat next to Spike Lee. The next step for you is when he stands up to do stuff. You got to stand up in unison with him. You got to make yourself part of the show with Spike Lee. I mean, it was it was challenging too because, like, you know, as the Knicks are just going through it, which they've obviously been going through it the last few weeks. Uh, he and I are talking about it, and he's like, he's looking at me like, "How are you not more worked up about this?" I'm like, Spike, I'm not, I'm not a fan. <laughs> like, I'm I'm a reporter, you know. So it's it's been interesting, but uh, that's been one of the the coolest, strangest parts of all of it. Um, 
but no, all of it has been crazy and just. I had a whole. I had. I have notes upon notes for this podcast. They're gone now. What was? What was Spike? What? What does Spike Lee want to know about the book? What was he? What are his questions? Because he obviously. I mean, he's an iconic figure now, but in that era with Reggie Miller and the Bulls series, I mean, he, he was Mars Blackman. Um, <laughs> right. Like, what does he want to know about the book? Like, did something surprise him in the book? What? What kind of questions does he have as someone who is front and center for well, that? He wanted to know. He wanted to know who I'd spoken to, like who hadn't, like what sorts of other details were kind of left on the cutting room floor. Uh, he wanted to know how I went about approaching some of the stuff with certain people, as far as like. Uh, you know, he's tight with certain people. And so, you know, there's details in there about Patrick Ewing that I don't think are that different than what's already out there. But he was like, did you have to kind of think long and hard about whether to include this because it's stuff of a pretty personal nature? And, you know, and so just stuff like that. I mean, he was interested in all of it. Uh, he was interested in the title, how the title came about. He wanted to know all sorts of stuff about me personally, which I had met Spike before, you know, someone that covered the Knicks uh, from 2012. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, but you, he you go way back. You go, you go way back at this point. But he point. didn't remember that. And so he was like, wait, when did I meet you? And he was like, do you remember, like, what we talked about? And I, I, I walked him through some of that. Spike is very, again, he's very, um, he has very clear opinions about um, what he what he follows politically and who he kind of believes in from that standpoint. And so it was funny because I think he, and I've had this reaction from other people like Jim Brown is a good example of uh, when I first met him and introduced myself as a reporter that there, you know, it's not common in certain arenas and certain sports to really have a black young black person interviewing you for a major publication. And so I introduced myself to Spike and, you know, told him that I was hoping to get to know him a little bit better just by being a Knicks reporter and everything. And so then I asked him if I could interview him the first time. And he said, uh, well, what what paper are you from? And when I told him the Wall Street Journal, he's like, ah, 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 can't do it. He's like, I already can tell I like you personally. But he's like, that's a Rupert Murdoch-owned publication. I can't do it. <laughs> so it that was our first interaction. So it, it's funny where, like I said, he has a very clear um, agenda, I think, of who he's more looking forward to. And if you know anything about him, even when it came to Malcolm X, um, and him directing one of my favorite films of all time, he specifically asked for black reporters to interview him about that film. And if you read far enough back on it, that he kind of wrestled that film out of another director's hands because he basically said, this film has to be done by, a, it has to be done by a black filmmaker. Like you can't get into all the nuances of it without the full context and some of that experience. And uh, so he's always been very, that, that's where I say pro black. I think he's always been particular about that. And I think that's actually why it kind of bothered him. He's like, I, I don't love the idea that somebody uh, prevented me from you, you getting a chance to interview me for this. Obviously, well, now I'm upset. Why are you not bringing Spike Lee onto this podcast as the third guest? I mean, we're all we're talking about is Spike Lee. Why did you? I, uh, okay. <laughs> Next time, let's, man. Let's move Next on. time. <laughs> He'd probably like to I'm do just, it. Yeah, just I'm just watching. I'm just sitting with the. I'm just sitting with Spike at the game. He's asking me about Miles Bridges. That's my life now. Me and Spike just talking about Lamelo Ball and Miles Bridges and whether the Hornets can keep it rolling. Chris Herring. Okay, all right, Chris. Um, let's talk about the book, which traces the Knicks through the '90s, basically from their rise to their near usurpation of the Jordan Bulls to the OJ Simpson finals in 1994 against the Rockets to their demise after the after the 99 uh, lockout run I want and just I am like the absolute perfect customer for your book I'm 44 years old I was a teenager when all this stuff happened and like the league in the early to mid 90s was just incredible because you had Jordan 
And as invincible as Jordan seemed at the time, we're going to get into it, there were a lot of nip-and-tuck playoff series. The big playoff games were like it was 2-2, 2-1, Game 7 against the Knicks in 92, where Jordan and the Bulls had to grind and grind and grind. Then you had Jordan's little interregnum where he left the, the league and went to play baseball and this sort of scrambling of like who is going to rise up in that vacuum. You had the Knicks, the Pacers, the Olajuwon Rockets, the Spurs, the Orlando Magic with Shaq and Penny were coming up and it was just an it was and then Jordan comes back and there's another it was just an incredible time. So I want to go back to I want to start there's a million places we could start. I want to start with the 1992 series between the Bulls and the Knicks in the second round of the playoffs. Because to me, as a sports fan growing up, the Bulls had just won their first title. This was the second of, of their first three-peat. They're, sec- they're going for their second straight title. The idea that this Knicks team, I, they were a 50-something win team that year, but the idea that this Knicks team, which was just an ugly, brawling, disgusting football team playing basketball with Pat Riley as its head coach, the idea, and that's Pat's first year on as the Knicks coach, correct? Yeah. Um, and Pat's, Pat, I think, is as close to the main character of this book as there is because he then, of course, defects to coach the Heat and then faces the Knicks in a, in a trilogy of playoff series uh, with the Heat. But it's his first year as coach. And I just remember, like, that series going seven games was so shocking to me as a neutral sports fan that this beautiful, invincible championship team with the greatest player ever on a guy that was certainly the greatest player then on pace to be the greatest player ever was pushed to the limit by what in the hell even is this team and Xavier McDaniels going crazy so I want you to take me back to that series it's three two bulls and and tell me and this is a little bit spoiling of your book but I was looking back reading the clips that you unearthed from that time the way Michael Jordan talked about that series in an era where you're, you, you, we've built Michael up as someone who never, and Michael has built himself up as someone who never evinced any weakness or vulnerability of any kind. The way he talked about that series astonished me. In retrospect, can you tell me? Can you share a little bit of that? No, I, th- I think you're spot on, and I think that was why I made a decision to pull that material. Is that um, the Bulls were kind of, I think, happy on some level to actually have the Knicks to play. Uh, they had obviously dethroned the Pistons the year before. Um, But it's still, the perception of them is still like you're going to take a beating, even if you beat them, even if you sweep them, which is what the Bulls had done the year before. So I I have the detail in there that Scottie Pippen had called Charles Oakley, by that point, you know, who's a Nick, but had formerly been a Bull, that Pippen had called Oakley before the series uh, started, you know, when the Bulls and when the Knicks and the Pistons we're going into a game five, uh, you know, a do or die game five in the first round. And he wished the Knicks good luck and wished Oakley good luck, which I, you know, however you want to perceive it, if it's just him wishing Oak good luck because he's friends with Oakley, if he's wishing them good luck because he thinks that the Knicks are less of a threat or less of a threat to kind of decapitate them or whatever else, uh, you know, he had wished the Knicks good luck, which was interesting because this is going to be kind of the new team that they struggle to get past or that it's really difficult for them to, to knock out. And nobody expected the Knicks to do much. The The tabloids certainly were essentially yawning before the series even started. The Bulls had swept the Knicks the year before, before Riley got there. Um, but then the series starts, and the Knicks take game one. And even when they don't win in the games after that, uh, the, the Knicks are really physical with them. And it's to the point where, to give you an example, 
Uh, there was one sequence in that series, I believe it was that year, where I think it was Jordan, it was Jordan, it was Pippen, and it was Paxson. The Bulls, this was right after Magic Johnson had been diagnosed with HIV, and so the league is finally implementing these rules about bleeding and the fact that you have to leave the game if you're openly bleeding. The Knicks sent all three of those guys to the sideline in the same quarter because they were all bleeding basically at the same time. Like that's how physical this team was. And they were seeking to be that physical because Riley told them that, but to fast forward to the part you're talking about. So the bulls get to game six, they're up three, two. Um, but the bulls are getting everything they could want more from the Knicks at that point. And Jordan has one game where he just is kind of gliding to the rim play after play after play. And Riley's furious and Riley gets on the flight and he's just stewing about it. They're going back to New York and Riley is just trying to figure out what to even say to them because he's so angry. And finally he has, he goes back and watches the film and he basically finds that the, the bulls had something like 30 drives to the basket. that were relatively unimpeded. So he tells Bob Salmi, the team's film coordinator, I want you to take the play from last year before I was here where Jordan just throws this massive tomahawk on Ewing after faking out Oakley and Starks on defense. And, you know, it's the play now that Michael Jordan has said is his favorite dunk of all time of his own. Um, he had Bob Salmi put that play. Basically, it would be like a vine in today's lingo. He had him play it on a loop for anywhere between five and six minutes on a loop. Just that one play. And he had them watch it in the locker room while Riley didn't say a word. And then finally, after he turns off the VHS, he said, that play makes me sick. And we cannot have anything like that. I need you guys to knock Michael Jordan to the floor. And I need you guys to stop befriending the guy. Essentially, you guys revere him too much and he senses it. And so I need one of you to knock him to the floor because he's not going to just play poorly. You have to make him do that. You have to take it from him. And it was it was like a violent sort of messaging that he was using. Uh, so he said that to them in the locker room before game six, but also in the day leading up to that, he'd started to say something about how they needed to have more tenacity in terms of how they defended him. And he was using that messaging in the media, which then prompted Michael Jordan to say, basically, I'm not looking forward to this next game because I know they're going to come in trying to take my head off. This series is brutal. I wish we were done with it. And it's not a sort of language that you hear Michael use very often, but I think it was that, ju that jumped off the page. That quote jumped off. The page. I was like, "Whoa, Michael said it this? was just honest." I think really, but he—I mean—he thought he had gotten past this sort of thing when he finally knocked out the Pistons. They were feeling fortunate to not have to play the Pistons this time, and then it's like, "Oh, the Knicks have essentially replaced the Pistons." And by the way, Riley came in saying, "This is the style that's most feasible to take this team out." The Pistons just basically got too old to do it, um, but we're younger. We've got the bodies to do it. We, we don't have that much offense outside of Patrick. So this is how we have to do it. And, and Michael came into that game right after, you know, drilling them for 38 with a bunch of straight line drives. He comes to that game and he, he basically doesn't go anywhere near the basket. He took 25 shots and 22 of them were from outside the paint. The one time he started to go to the paint, he lost the ball without anybody being around him, basically. Like, you know, the way I compare it in the book is like he was hearing footsteps as a receiver with a DB about to come and lay him out. I think he knew that. And so he was losing the ball in a really uncharacteristic fashion. But uh, yeah, they did win the series, the the Bulls, but they lost that game six by a pretty broad margin. And going into that game seven, the Knicks were outscoring them. They were out-rebounding them. They were out-assisting them. 
they were out physicaling them where they had, you know, something like seven or eight flagrants to the Bulls zero. Um, they they were striking some fear seemingly into the Bulls. And Scottie Pippen was playing a brutal series because Xavier McDaniel was was trying to hurt him and basically had succeeded in terms of turning his ankle and everything else. It was it was a series that was not trending in the right direction for the Bulls until Jordan basically put his foot down and said enough in game seven. Well, you have all these great anecdotes about I mean, all these great statistics. The, the bleeding stories reminded me of this. Like, Oakley by himself had more flagrant fouls than, like, the entire NBA one year. There's, like, I don't know the exact stats. But you have all these stats in this book about how how the Knicks were just out-flagranting and out-violenting the entire league put together. I didn't remember, though, two details about the Knicks and their alleged violence on the league. Number one, that there were actually some pretty high-level sit-downs between Nick's brass and David Stern in which Nick's brass came pretty close to being like, Hey, you guys have it out for the Knicks. Maybe there's something suspicious going on here. Cause you don't like our style of play. I had not remembered that. And it did not shockingly just the, just the nudging toward the line of saying, maybe the league is not a big fan of how the Knicks play did not go over well with David Stern. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the, the truth is like, they weren't, fans of how they played the Knicks were of the opinion that it, it's funny we 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 rehash the conversation all the time about the 85 draft lottery and um you know was it a frozen envelope where was the Nick was the league trying to help the Knicks because in helping the Knicks it would have helped the league because that's their big market um and the the fallout from it regardless of what you think the league has always denied that there was something at play there the Knicks were of the opinion that the league was trying to undo whatever perception that that created, that they had to step up and basically say, we're not friends with the Knicks. Actually, we're going to take stuff out harder on the Knicks because we want to show that we're not friendly with them and we're not doing them favors. And so the Knicks were of the opinion that between that and also the fact that the league is basically right in the backyard of Madison Square Garden and that the fact that the league had more season tickets to Knicks games than any other corporation or organization that the Knicks were basically saying, we're under surveillance. Like everything we do is being watched more closely from our starting lineup introductions, running 15 seconds too long and the league looking to ding us for that every time. Or the fact that even when we show instant replays that are perceived to be controversial calls from the refs or sketchy calls, that we show those replays three times and the league is honest about it because you're not supposed to show controversial replays. Yes, please, 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 in thirty seconds, tell listeners about the red phone, <laughs> the bat phone, which I did not, which I did not know about, it and laughed very, very hard. Yeah, no, the, the the Knicks had a red phone sitting down on you know courtside, basically, to tell their game ops people anytime there was a play that was controversial that you were only supposed to show once because of the rule I just laid out, the the quiet rule that the league had about that, that the Knicks. Brass, basically, Ernie Grunfeld, Dave Checkets would call down to the people sitting courtside on the red phone. And any time it was a controversial call, they would call and say, play it again, play it again, show it again, to essentially try to, you know, guilt the refs and make them feel bad for the fact that they'd called it. And that would obviously piss could, off the could the red phone Could the red phone make calls? Or was it one of those phones that didn't even have, like, a dial on it or any numbers? It could just take incoming calls from, like, two numbers? I want to know. I need to see the red phone. I kind of want to see it, too. But, it, I mean... Is I, it I red? Am I making people. up that it's red? Is it actually it was red? red was it, it red? Was a red phone. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, so the, the Knicks had... And I think that detail is important just because the Knicks had something of a contentious relationship with the league. I mean, this all kind of came to a head really 
in, I think it was at 92 or 93, where Charles Oakley laid out Reggie Miller. And there's one play in particular during a regular season game, a December 30th, I think 1992 game, uh, where Reggie Miller is cutting back door. Rick Smith sees him and throws him a pass. But Charles Oakley sees Miller stepping up to try to make the catch. So Oakley steps up and lays out a shoulder. And Reggie Miller just goes flying. And the ball goes off Reggie Miller's hand, out of bounds. But the refs didn't call a foul. And they also didn't get the out-of-bounds call right. It went off Reggie's hand, but they called it off the Knicks. And all you hear is Marv Albert say, whoa! And it's like the refs were too dumbfounded to even know what to call. And Donnie Walsh, the Pacers GM, is sitting there in the crowd. And in that very moment, he said to himself, one, they didn't call a foul, and two, they missed the call. It was clearly off us, but they're calling it our ball because I don't know if the refs are trying to make up the call or they're just, they didn't know what happened because it happened so fast. But all I know is as the Pacers GM, I'm about to overhaul our team to go bring in more guys like Oakley because it, it confuses the refs as to even what to do with them. And so the Pacers, there was no foul called there, but the league later fined Oakley like the next day for laying out his shoulder and lowering his shoulder on Reggie. And the Knicks were furious. And they, that was when they essentially alleged and they threatened to not allow Rod Thorne, the league's disciplinarian, to come to their games anymore. And they said, like, we need to hash this out. We want to have a meeting at headquarters, at league headquarters. And that was when they alleged that the league had it out for them, basically, and that they were making it like a fairness issue. David Stern basically told them to get the F out. Um the Knicks had brought their there lead no, lawyer. There, the, the, no base, the, his language was almost assuredly even worse than that, knowing David I'm Stern. sure. I mean, um, but they, they brought their lead, their lead lawyer. The, the Knicks brought their lead lawyer to me, and their lawyer was saying, like, we can't make this argument. Like, this is crazy. Like, they were arguing that they're out to get us, like, based on what? But they wanted to send the message that, like, and that was, I used the line, it was an abrasive way of handling it, but abrasive was all the Knicks knew. And so it's it kind of becomes interesting when you know what happens later on in 97, certainly, that, you know, the idea that the Knicks feel like the league has it out for them. I don't know that that... that 97, to be clear, I think you're referencing the first of their trilogy against the Heat, which the Heat win uh, in seven games after uh, brawl number one between the two teams results in a whole ton of suspensions for the Knicks in game seven. The Knicks would, of course, win the next two against the Heat. All that is in the book. The second of those three is the famous brawl where Jeff Van Gundy is on Alonzo Mourning's leg getting dragged around the floor and in, 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 he claims he'd barely even remember. He like kind of blacked out and right. doesn't even remember doing that. Um, so, so we're jumping all over the place because there's so many great details. But just a mere mention of Charles Oakley. Chris, you read a book like this. It's 300 pages long. I've read a gazillion other books about basketball. You're only going to remember off the top of your head so many things from each particular book. One of them I will remember for the rest of my life, and I had never heard this before, is that Charles Oakley, ultimate blue-collar basketball player. You just described what he did to Reggie Miller. Charles Oakley led the Knicks, maybe led the entire league, in sending back food at restaurants because it was not up to his standards. How did you learn this? Where did this come from? Were you able to talk to Charles Oakley about this? Is he more particular about like the cut of his meat, the quality of his salads? I just need to know everything about Charles Oakley sending food back at restaurants. That one was actually not that surprising to me. Um, I've only met Charles really maybe one time. And uh, I was doing a podcast with Bill Roden several years ago at a restaurant in Harlem. And uh, I think because I covered the Knicks and because he'd spoken to Charles, 
he decided to have us on together. Um, and so it was my first time meeting Charles. We talked a little bit. And this was years ago before all this stuff with him in the garden a few years back. Um, and we we ended up talking a lot about Charles being like this gourmet chef, uh, which is not necessarily what you expect when you just, you know, see this big bustling dude that is more physical than everybody else combined. But, um, but you know, but he picked up a lot of things. He learned how to cook, I think, as a relatively young person. He grew up in a house with his mom, and I think he had like four sisters. And so he he picked up a lot of things around the house, but also he picked it up out of necessity because he never really trusted anyone to make stuff as well as he could. And uh, so teammates would just kind of get frustrated and, and coaches and stuff because they're like, I can't eat with this dude because if you're trying to be polite and not start your food until someone else has theirs, he has his, but then he sends it back all the time. And uh, I think Brendan Malone, Michael Malone's father, uh, who was an assistant with the Knicks during that year. He was like, he would send back everything. And keep in mind, we're a professional basketball team that has the means to go like really nice places, but nothing was up to his standards. And so he would always send it back. It'd be salads. It'd be German chocolate cake. You know, when, again, we have like essentially a private plane. So everything we're getting is first class, but not to Oakley. Uh, And so it was frustrating for some of them, but that's just how he is. He's very particular. And he's very particular about the sorts of things he eats too, which probably explains why he's still in such great shape. But, uh, yeah, uh, people were describing it as frustrating. Oakley's full of stories. He's also particular about uh, gambling and the way that gambling on the team plane should proceed. In a detail I'm sure you've talked about already on podcasts, but I don't care. Please educate everyone on the credit card machine that Charles Oakley would apparently carry around on road trips. Because I just, I can pick, I don't even know what the term for this machine is, but it's amazing. So I, I think you've hit the nail on the head with, with that being my favorite detail too uh, of everything. And I've, I've got hundreds of them, not just in the book, but you know, left on the cutting room floor. Oak. Uh, so that 97 season I described deeply because it was kind of a season where the guys just really liked each other. And that was not always the case. Every NBA locker room has got guys that really don't like each other, but this team had a bunch of guys that were, that all believed in Christianity and seven or eight of them would pray together at a time, and they would have Bible study meetings on the road where it was more than half the roster. Uh, they were able to get Patrick Ewing to come out with them to go dancing one night. Patrick Ewing was very to himself. Um, and even the gambling was kind of more in unison than normal, and this was a team that already liked to gamble in the early years under Riley. Uh, but Oakley kind of wanted everybody to gamble, uh, you know, like anything where you want all your friends to be involved in something. Um, but he, you know, Oak made a different amount of money than – a lot of the young guys did. He and Ewing and Starks were more highly paid than everybody else. So he would get an excuse from teammates repeatedly that, you know, Oak, I've only got my per diem. I don't have enough cash to gamble. Whereas Oakley would bring a leather duffel bag of 50,000 cash on most trips. So as one, as one does, <laughs> as, as one Charles as, Oakley as, does. When I, when, I go to, when I go to LA for work, what do you think I'm carrying in my luggage? <laughs> so... Just in case I see some like-minded person on the plane with a deck of right, cards. Right, right, right. So, so Oak decides that he is getting tired of this excuse that, you know, all I've got is my per diem. I can't gamble with you. Um, so he decides to get around that and kind of take away that excuse, take that excuse off the table by buying a credit card, like an old school credit card imprint machine that scans and makes the, the whoosh, whoosh sound like when you, you scan it. And uh, he did that. And not only did he do that, but he also would uh, charge teammates something like a nine or a 10% tax for using it. So if it was two grand, you know, that someone was putting on credit, essentially, then it would be 22 or 2300. So he, he was an interesting dude that I mean, that's a determination. Uh, when we talk about for the love of the game, like, 
for the love of the cards, I guess, at that point for, for Oak. But he keep in mind, he was someone that came up with Michael Jordan, who also on some level was known for, <laughs> for gambling. So it, maybe it makes sense, but that was Oakley for you. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. 93 and 94 are the sort of so close yet so far years for these Knicks. And let's start in 93 because if there's a game, if there's one game that I think all Nick fans look back on with pain and regret. It's game five of the conference finals against the Bulls. It's 2-2. The Knicks are the number one seed that year. They had won the first two games in New York. The first time the Bulls had ever really been punched in the mouth like that in a playoff series. Down 2-0. Bulls win games three and four in Chicago. And game five happens in New York. And that is the uh, Charles Smith stuffed game. Uh, in which Charles Smith is blocked three or four times, three or four on one. I think it's four, maybe on one play, right at the end of the game. Are they? Three, they're down. Was they're a steal down or something like that. But yeah, same difference. Um, Charles Smith. Well, first of all, just talk about what you learned about that game. And the Knicks go on to lose Game Six in Chicago. The Bulls go on to win their third consecutive championship over Phoenix. But that game. The thing that people need to be reminded over and over about that game is I think the Bulls won by three. The Knicks were 20 of 35 mm. at the foul line. I mean, for all the attention on Smith stuffed, 20 of 35 on the foul line is you just can't get that back, man. That is so painful. But what did you learn about that game? And then I want to particularly talk about Charles Smith, who becomes one of the most fascinating characters in the book and sort of his trauma with the Knicks sort of as a window into how Riley operated. But take me back to that game. What stands out to you from that game or that series? Even? Sure. Well, I think there's a couple things. The, the, the free throw thing is a huge one uh, and one that Doc Rivers has talked about and talked about with me a little bit about just how he can remember like every moment of that game Doc can. And uh, he at one point he describes losing the game and what that felt like. And he some of the strongest language I've ever heard. He was like, he basically said it's like losing a really, really close family member unexpectedly out of nowhere. He's like, I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm saying that it's that painful. And it, I think it represents the feeling, which I was like, wow, that's strong. Um, but he remembers not being in the game for a technical free throw and it being missed. And I think Doc was the only player literally on the whole roster that made all his free throws. And I think maybe he was three for three. And everybody else in that game missed a free throw. So 20 for 35 was essentially the worst free throw shooting performance they had that season. But also that they got blasted on the boards in a way that normally didn't have. I think they lost 48 to 37 on the boards. And that night. It was the only game in the series where they didn't win 
The rebounding battle, I think it resulted in something like 14 or 15 second chance points. So every point mattered there. Um, and Charles Smith had a really rough quarter. Like, I think he had one good play um, where defensively made a really nice play on Pippen, but he missed a couple free throws towards the end there. Um, and it just was, you know, it was just a, a night where nothing really went right in the last few minutes of that contest. But, you know, it was something that the way I even start that chapter is just the idea of Charles Smith back at Pitt, uh, just such a skilled player, but someone that really never grew all that comfortable with contact. And I start the chapter with him being at Pitt in a practice and him getting angry with the teammate that just keeps hacking him and hacking him on one-on-one post-up drills, basically. And he says, like, why are you keep hitting me? Like, I'm to the point where I'm bleeding. And the player, his teammate, I might have been his roommate, uh, Steve Maslek says, coach told me to do it. So Charles makes a beeline right after practice. As his coach, you told Steve to hit me? And he said, well, yeah. Like, I'm trying to get you to be able to play through contact. So he was never really a fan of it. And, uh, you know, obviously it brings it full circle when you've got that game. But everything about that to that, you know, just how the players take it, after that game, Riley saying that maybe that game is the defining one in this team's life, uh, or you know that team's life cycle, I thought was interesting. The language he used around it. It's weird. It's weird because they make the finals the next year and they get to Game Seven of the finals. Not only do they get to Game Seven, they're up three two, and Starks has a shot to win the championship that Olajuwon gets a fingertip on in an all time great defensive mm. play, um, and and yet. That game the year before against the Bulls does somehow, even though it's around earlier, feel like the defining game of the Knicks year. Maybe because it's Jordan. Maybe because it's just it's it's like more heartbreaking than the Houston loss. I don't know why, but given that they made the finals the next year, it's weird that that game feels like the game. I'm right there with you because people have asked me a lot over the last couple of weeks, like which do you like? What moment do you feel like is the one that breaks Knicks fans' hearts the most? Is it Charles Smith? Is it two for 18 in game seven with Starks? Is it the 97 stuff with PJ Brown and Charlie Ward that, you know, nah, it's not, it's not 97, 97. I don't think it is either, but I also don't think it's 93 or that it should be 93 because the difference with 93 and 94 is that, like you said, they were at, at least one play away at most, you know, they, if John Stark shoots two for 15, two for 14 or three for something, four for something, they win game seven or they just win game six on that one shot, which he, I don't think people realize or remember at this point, Starks had made six shots in a row in that, in that game six where he goes up for the last shot of game six. He really did have an open shot, a pretty open look, and Olajuwon comes out of nowhere to block it. That's the shot where Ewing is still mad that Starks didn't pass him the ball, right? That Ewing says, I rolled open at the foul line. I'll tell you, Chris, I watched the video that's a tough pass for Starks yep. to make with not a lot of time on the clock either. Like Ewing is going to get that ball and have to fling up a, a, a hope shot. He is. And I, you know, I, I go into some detail about that. Um, there was an excerpt that ran on sports illustrated about of that chapter and of game six, game seven, but I, I had to cut it to make enough space to leave enough space for everything else. Um, in the chapter itself, I go into detail about the fact that John Starks, you know, one of the weaknesses of his game, was that he was not a great passer, and he wasn't very good at passing the ball in the small windows. He'd gotten a pass that he threw into Ewing, stolen about a minute before that, too. And as soon as play stopped, he kind of pointed at his head and said, I should have known better than to try to force that pass in there. And I have a detail in the book, too, from the season before about the fact that Starks really struggled to even just kind of 
pass the ball into Patrick in the post, that he was not a very good entry passer. And that at one point, Pat Riley yelled at him after like four or five tries in a row and practice. Riley just stops the practice. He said, we're not going any effing where until John gets the ball into Patrick. So he was not great at putting the ball right on Patrick in small spaces. Also, Patrick was not brilliant at really catching the ball cleanly on, on tough passes like that either, on those small pocket passes. So I, I tend to think Stark shooting be, between him being on fire. I mean, literally, if this is NBA Jam, you know, it's, the ball's probably searing through Hakeem's finger if it's NBA Jam, you know. So he he's on fire. Patrick's not clearly, clearly open in a way where you can get him the ball. And at most, there's maybe a second, a half second left on the clock for Patrick to get the shot off anyway. So I, I kind of agree that Stark should have taken the shot. But um, the whole sequence, all of it is just kind of crazy. That To me, that's the moment where they had a chance. I agree with you that Michael being involved in the series before the year before is the reason that people harp on that one more with Charles Smith. It's, it's so interesting how we as fans process players and how we relate to players and how history changes that or it changes over time. But like, And it says something about Stark's connection with New York City and New York fans, and I think his rags-to-riches unlikely story. A guy who was going to junior college where they didn't even have a basketball team. He was playing intramurals, as you detail in the book. How unlikely that is because – it's really hard to go down as a beloved franchise legend and have a two for 18 game seven performance. And I, I, I sometimes for, I, I have to refresh my memory on this stuff too. The Reggie Miller eight points in nine seconds game, which is game one in 1995 Starks misses two free throws in the last 10 seconds of the game when the Knicks can still win the game. And like, he must've been, I'm guessing he was a 75 to 80% free throw shooter as a good shooter for his career to miss the, and he kind of admits I choked like I choked because I was so astonished that Reggie Miller had just scored all these points to tie the game. And yet for John Starks, for whatever reason, all that gets wiped away and he's a beloved Nick for life. Charles Smith blows this game for the Knicks, never fits in, gets pulled over by the cops on the way home from that game in a story you detail is challenged. I mean, you can you can elaborate on this and, and, and maybe correct me if I'm exaggerating is essentially, I think, the next year almost accused of faking injuries by Pat Riley and basically everyone, maybe not faking injuries, but certainly faking the extent of his injuries. Is that fair? No, I think you're spot on with with the way you're describing it. And that was, like, I wanted to detail that. He was the one guy in the book that I didn't go in saying, I need a full chapter about this guy. Like, I probably should have known that going in, but I didn't go in thinking that. And then as I started to kind of write more and write more, I was like, no, there has to be. Because like you said, I think that moment is so singular for Knicks fans. But then the fallout from it, by the way, the, 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 if there was one detail that I uncovered that I felt like was the craziest of all of them, it was that the newspapers had in the next day's papers after the Game 5 loss that the Knicks had agreed to, in principle, a seven-year, $26 million deal with Charles Smith. I was like, I, I had to like reread that 20 times and ask the people involved like 20 times because I'm like, I'm... That fundamentally is nuts to me. Obviously, we have hindsight now where it's like it looks crazy to look at a play that might psychologically damage someone for years to come and that you just hand them the longest deal on your books um, for someone that Pat Riley essentially made it clear he didn't want. Um, And so anyway, to your point, though, yeah, I mean, Riley essentially says to him, and I think Harvey Ayrton was the first one that reported this, uh, that Charles Smith walks in the locker room 
Uh, the team is playing, is getting ready to play a game. So Pat Riley's talking to them pregame and writing on the blackboard about what he wants done defensively. Um, but then stops what he's doing when Charles walks in in a suit because he can't play that night due to knee problems. And Pat says, you know, Charles, if I needed you to give me one minute tonight, and it was just one minute, and that one minute could result in us winning a title, could you give me that one minute? And Charles doesn't really know how to respond, but obviously he says, like, of course I could if I had to. And he's like, then what the hell are you doing in that suit? And the way it was described to me is that it just kind of made it open season on Charles Smith because at that point you're questioning his toughness and you're questioning whether he really wants to be out there. So Charles suits up for the game, but the guy had chronic knee issues and the guy had had two or three knee surgeries that season, like within that calendar year where he had a knee clean out and it was essentially almost like it didn't take or like he didn't respond well to it. And he still had problems with it, which should have been a clear sign of knee issues. But keep in mind, he's playing with Charles Oakley who plays through broken hands and broken toes. He's playing with Patrick and Ewing. Also breaks, and also breaks other people, including, I think, a Knicks assistant who was unfortunately in the way of Charles Oakley trying to save a ball in a practice and paid a dear, dear physical price for he it. He did. It might have saved his life, though. That, that, that assistant told me that he uh, Charles saved a ball kind of like into his crotch. Uh, and the, the assistant is like in horrible pain, tries to gut through it. He does for the rest of the practice, but then... Um, you know, after it's not healing after like a day or two, he goes to see a urologist and the urologist basically tells him like, you've got a bigger problem here. You've got like a growth that could be cancerous and got it removed. And so the, the assistant that I talked to was basically like, you know, I told Charles he might have saved my life. Like I wouldn't have known that. So, it, it, but anyway, I guess this is a decide. But you had these guys that were just, it was a, a, a built for tough sort of roster. And Charles Smith was kind of the black swan, the ugly duckling of this group that they kept trying to make more like them. Pat Riley tried to make more like them, but when he couldn't do that or wasn't that, and by the way, Charles Smith might have had like, if you are looking at that roster and you're trying to figure out like who would have been even better in this era, Charles Smith has to be right near the top of that list uh, because he was maybe one of the two or three most skilled guys they had on offense. And for people that didn't think that he was much on defense or that good or that they were disappointed in who he was, he was a guy that had been a four or a five who averaged 20 points a game for the Clippers before he got to the Knicks. The reason they gave him that seven-year deal or extension was because he was like the youngest of their core players. He had tied a franchise record for the Clippers for scoring in a game before he got to the Knicks with 51 points. He could shoot a mid-range jump shot. He was a pretty good passer. The problem was that they wanted him to play small forward. And he's playing next to Oakley and Ewing, uh, which, you know, on some level, maybe the better option is to bring him off the bench and have Mason start as a small forward and then let Charles play his natural four or five because he was a power forward or center. Certainly in today's game, he's a center. But, uh, you know, he never really fit. But like he was being asked to play outside of his position and guard Scotty Pippen, which is difficult to do for someone that's 6'10", 6'11", you know. Let's wrap by talking about Pat Riley. Here are some things about Pat Riley that are in the book. Just to give, just to whet people's appetite for the window into the person that is Pat Riley. Early in his career, he told one player, I, I believe, I'm going from my notes here, to stop reading the Bible on flights because he would be less tough as a player in, or not as aggressive in, in games. Um, dunked his own head in an ice bath 
for as long as he could hold his breath as his whole team watched. And I think it went on for like two minutes and people began to fear that Pat Riley was going to drown himself in some bizarre show of toughness that he wanted to imbue upon his team. Once wore cleats, baseball cleats, around the locker room, and I think that was some sort of message of like, I want you to slide into second base, metaphorically, in basketball terms, spikes up and hits some people. Calls his connection to Mickey Arison of the Miami Heat, a job that he wants, calls him from the Knicks bus after they get eliminated in the 1995 playoffs to begin negotiating his exit deal to Miami and or finalize his exit deal to Miami. As part of his contract with Miami, he wants Mickey Arison to buy his houses in Los Angeles and New York, I guess for some reason. And then, of course, there's all sorts of stuff about he wants the Knicks to cover his dry cleaning and this and that. Um... I don't think you got Pat Riley to talk to you for this book, but this is just the full Pat Riley, like, whoa, this guy is from a different, this guy's a different kind of dude. Has he responded to you since the book came out? Have, has you, have you, I mean, not, all of this stuff or a lot of it is probably already out there, but taken together, you get this picture of a guy who's just so maniacally competitive and, and, and almost showy up. Like the ice bath thing is nuts. Um, have, have you heard from him? What's the reaction been like like about him as sort of the main character of the book? You know, it, it's funny. When you're in the middle of this, you you I there's been so much written about Pat Riley before that I was worried like that I didn't have enough on him. Uh not not bad stuff or just like but stuff that like makes him read interestingly that's not already out there. I think that's one of the bigger challenges in a book is you never want people to walk away from it saying, I knew all this stuff already. I I you know, I worked really hard to make sure that this book would not be just like a Everybody knows this. The diehards know this. So I really worked hard to try to get stuff on Riley. And um, no, I have not heard back from him specifically. I did hear from someone kind of with ties to the Heat organization that said, I'm loving this book so far. The stuff on Pat is incredible. Do me a favor. I'm going to send you a book. I, I need you to sign one out to Pat. And I was like, are you sure he's going to be a fan of the book? Like, are you sure you want to do that? Because I look, I wasn't out to like get him. Uh, as far as like make him look bad, but I I do think the portrayal is is certainly critical in spots from what other people thought about him about just the way it makes him come off is like he and the person responded by saying you don't think Pat already knows he's this person. See, I was just about to say it reminds me of all the people who that line of thinking, the worry that he wouldn't like it, reminds me of the people being like, wow, MJ really came off like kind of a jerk in the last dance like so he maniacally competitive like like this and this i'm like yeah he like he that was his documentary that's exactly how he wants to come <laughs> off like riley probably loves it like i i, I would imagine being like damn right i'm like this absolutely so, i wore baseball cleats around the locker room and dunked my head in an ice bath and told swen nader to not read the bible because it's gonna make him soft so you and me are like more probably more normal people like where we care maybe you don't I care what people think of me a little bit, you know, so I, I, but to some extent, I'm not wired that way. Like I'm not a high level athlete. I don't want to win at all costs, no matter what, if I'm taking someone out and knocking them down to the ground or hurting them or breaking Kenny Anderson's wrist or anything else. Like, so I can't relate with that, but Pat probably can. And and so my thing and what I wrote, I, I did write a, a note to him in the book that I sent out a couple of days ago. And I said, look, more than anything for this book, I really wanted to get you for it. 
You were the central character of it. Even when you weren't with the Knicks, you were the central character of this book still. And I would have liked to have gotten you for the book. I'm sorry it didn't work out, but I really hope to sit down with you at some point in the future. And more than anything, I hope you feel the portrayal is fair. And and you and I have talked about this before because I think you were there the day that my request to speak to him came through. I texted the man. Um, I had had people advise me. Wright Thompson was really the last guy to really truly sit down with Pat Riley and write a long profile feature. I'm, you know, Wright is, if not the the best magazine writer in the country, certainly one of the best and one of the most esteemed. Um, and he gave me some advice. I went to Schenectady for the better part of a week where Pat grew up in the freezing cold. It was a snowstorm for, you know, for days at a time. There's not a whole lot to do in Schenectady, but I wanted to better understand where the man came from. I wanted to talk with people that grew up with them, that played ball with them coming up, that are still friends with them. I wanted to see the the Hall of Fame that they built around all his accomplishments at the high school that he went to. I wanted to see the hill that his dad's had on to get a radio connection to be able to listen to his games from upstate New York when he played at the University of Kentucky. I I wanted all of it uh, because I couldn't get him specifically, but that was how much I wanted to speak to him. And I I hope I got the essence of who he was without being able to speak to him. And, and quite frankly, Zach, if I'm being honest, um, I didn't speak to anyone that was on the cover of the book. There are five people there. There's Riley, there's Ewing, there's Starks, there's Mason, and there's Oakley. Oakley's got a book coming out tomorrow, so I understand why he didn't want to talk. You've probably dealt with the Knicks before as far as trying to do media. They're not particularly helpful in that regard. Um, I guess I'll out myself a little bit. I was mentioning before that Patrick Ewing, uh, that I had some details in the book about him that uh, like I said, I think most of the stuff has been out there, but I was asking some relatively personal questions about him that I don't think were necessarily disrespectful, but they're just to get to the truth of how stuff happened, why stuff happened. Um, and so I asked someone that ended up being a, a much closer friend of his than I realized about some stuff about him having had an extramarital affair with the team dancer. And so someone that essentially would have known some of the backstory in that, she was like, I'm really close friends with Patrick. So I assume that it got back to him that I was asking questions about that. It wasn't the sole reason I called her. I had all sorts of questions about the dance team too. And I, I, I detail some of that stuff in the early chapters, just about the formation of the dance team in those years, but I didn't get him. Mason obviously passed away and then there was Riley. So I didn't get any of those people, but to me, the idea of having to do more legwork when you can't speak to someone and, and you know this, uh, you, you've done enough reporting like this before where you really want to get someone but these are people that don't talk much or say, you know, no, thank you. I don't want to talk. You almost end up doing more reporting because you can't get them and you talk to everybody around them. So, you know, Jeff Van Gundy, you mentioned him earlier on the pod. Uh, he gave an extremely, uh, I, I don't think of him as the, the warmest person. I think he's a nice dude, but he said something on the Michael K show last week where he said he thought the book was exceptionally fair, uh, which to me is one of the highest compliments I could get other than maybe Spike Lee. <laughs> Um, just because Jeff was literally a part of it and um, you talk to more than 200 people, you're obviously trying to get to the truth of what happened. So in not getting those people, I, my biggest hope is just that it was a fair portrayal that kept people entertained because I think it was a fascinating era. You know, I'm putting the over under at a month and I'm taking the under on when an unknown number comes up on your phone and you pick it up and it's Pat Riley. I'm put. I'm taking the under. I'm taking the, the under. under. He's going wow. to reach out. I'm taking the under. Uh, look, you've got to go. 
I got to bring on Tim McMahon. We have not, this is like the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. We didn't even get into Anthony Mason and all the stories you've got about him, the Reggie Miller Pacers series. There's so much more. I might have to have you on again, Chris. I don't want to just ruin the whole book, but it's a, it's an absolutely fantastic book. It's going to be the basketball book that comes out this year, maybe the sports book, and it is going to change your life. And I'm thrilled for you because I know how hard you've worked on it. And I know how impossible it is to write a book while doing uh, like day-to-day and you've got job. yours coming someday so, if you want to I'll, I'll put it oh, that way it's never gonna happen it's <laughs> never gonna happen uh congratulations to everyone go out and buy blood in the garden by chris herring he deserves all the money for it chris uh absolutely fantastic job and thanks for coming on thank you so much man praying for you and your family buddy thanks warm up with the hottest games live with vivid seats no matter the sport Vivid Seats wants you to get to the games you love. Plus, with Vivid Seats Rewards, you can score free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, an annual birthday discount. Everyone loves that. And more. They're the only ticket company in the game that rewards fans for every purchase. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you, that's you, $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. It's demon time on Prize Picks, where you can now win up to 100 times your money. That's right, 100, 100 times, times your money. money. With as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Demons and goblins are the newest and most exciting way to play at Prize Picks. Squares marked with red demons or green goblins get you different payouts. And as always, Prize Picks is really simple to play. You can make your picks and submit your entry in less than 60 seconds. They even offer injury insurance so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. Quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of players and stat types are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Just download the app today and use code LOW for a first deposit match up to $100. That's code LOW on the Prize Picks app for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. All right, let's bring on one of my favorite guests to talk about what is now somehow potentially the 4-5 series, really, in the Western Conference. The soaring Dallas Mavericks in the flailing Utah Jazz, Mr. Tim McMahon. How are you, sir? Howdy, partner. You said 4-5. I thought I thought we were going to get to the Nuggets. Uh, okay, no, Maz Jazz, we, we can do that for sure. And uh, Oh, look. My everyone knows I love Nikola Jokic and the Nuggets. I'm going to defend Nikola Jokic's honor as people just laugh at him as an MVP candidate. I'm like, are you? Are you know, you, are we the, watching the same? Are we watching the same basketball it, games? The Nuggets are Nuggets are 28 and 21. It's a case of Wendy just invading the the mind of the uh, of the basketball fan in this country and poisoning the mind, I should say, with his Joker hate. It's unacceptable. I will not stand for it. I know you don't either, but. Hey, we've got we've got the Mavs are uh, playing really well for the last month plus. The Jazz, oh, it's been a tough January. Let's talk about Dallas first because uh, last week on the pod I said they are to me sneakily the most interesting trade deadline team. And like we all know what's going on in Philly, we all know about like the Indiana, Sacramento, Boston axis of pain, Atlanta, all these miserable teams. Dallas is a different kind of case and a more interesting one to me. As you said, they've been playing very well. They're 14 and five in their last 19 games. They're now fifth. No, they're sixth in the West, but they're all. It's basically a three-way tie for fourth. They have the number one defense in the NBA in January. Their offense is still about average. 
They have this new starting five, although Kristaps Porzingis is hurt again. Tim Hardaway Jr. is hurt for a while, potentially. We're going to talk about that and how that impacts their trade deadline stance. But I think this is a pretty solid defensive team. I think they're defending a little bit above their heads due to some bad opponent shooting. But they're solid. They communicate. They're on a string. They're doing the right stuff. Offensively, I think if they stayed healthy, they'd continue to get better. I like Brunson in the starting five next to Luka. So I guess zooming out, my first question to you as someone who knows this team inside and out is sort of a two-parter. Number one, we're sitting here being like, wait a second, what is this team? Are they the team that was 15 and 17? Are they this juggernaut? Are they somewhere in between? So number one, what do the Mavs think of that question? What do the Mavs think of themselves? And connected to that, what are we going to see from them at the trade deadline with A, these injuries now, and I don't know how that clouds their judgment about themselves, and B, two starters, Jalen Brunson and Dorian Finney-Smith, potentially heading in to unrestricted free agency and do big big paydays. Start there. Yeah, so the, the Mavericks think they are a team that has morphed into a very, very good defensive team. They are a, suddenly a defense-first team, which w- nobody would have believed going into the season, but I give Jason Kidd credit. I give Sean Sweeney, his, his uh, lead assistant, his defensive coordinator, a ton of credit. Luka Doncic has gotten into shape. He was a huge, no pun intended, part of their defensive issues early in the season. Uh, I'm told he's down now into the 240s, kind of close to his rookie weight. Uh, you know, you see what he's doing offensively. He's back to being the guy who's a an, an easy first team All NBA selection the last two years, but he has been part of this defense. And and you know, not that Luca is a defensive stopper, but he is playing his role within the defense. He's playing hard. He's running back in transition instead of huffing and puffing or yelling at referees. Uh, you know what? You know what he had the other night, Tim. What's that? He had one one of the first one of the first. Give me that. Yeah. of his career where he blocked somebody's shot at the rim and the rim mic in Dallas, which is allowed his rim, called him saying, give me that And I'm like, all right, Luca, all right. Hey, he had a blocked shot against the Pacers that Rick Carlisle must have been so shocked by that Rick was insisting to the referee, you know, Rick gets his little animated, he's clapping, he's hitting his wrist, you know, that was a foul, it was a foul. And Luca, uh, you know, had some warm, fuzzy responses to Rick in the moment. And then a, a couple minutes later is when Luca capped his 22-point first half by hitting that corner three. If you watch the tape of the corner three, Luca kind of mean mugs, and then he looks over to the Pacers bench, points, and gives a little bang-bang. Uh, I do believe that was intended towards his former coach. Who he did? He embraced, he embraced him post-game. Nice little warm double hug moment. But uh, you know what, what I'm trying to say is, Luca is taking pride in defense. He is fitting in with this new culture uh, defensively. And obviously, Dorian Finney-Smith is always going to guard the, the best scorer on the other team, one through four. Um, you know, Maxi Kleber is the second-best defender. Porzingis, when healthy, has been drastically better this year. He's, he's been much healthier, you know, if you're a Mass fan, knock on wood with this knee soreness that they don't think is serious, but, you know, not serious. Look, any any yeah. any lower extremity injury with Porzingis at this point is is I'm, I'm I get the highs. It's, it's just yeah. just in fear. When, when when his knee's sore enough where he has to leave the game, and he doesn't have a good knee, they've both been surgically repaired. It is concerning, but he has been a a really really uh, good rim protector this year. Um, you know, guys like Reggie Bullock who has started shooting three well after really struggling for the first couple months, but he's been solid defensively. And again, they they just play 
harder. And I think you have to give kid credit for uh, recognizing what went wrong in the previous head coach's tenure and, and, and trying to address some of those things from a cultural and psychological standpoint. Now, the, a Luka Doncic team should not be mediocre offensively, right? And, and again, this is Luka not being himself for the first however many, you know, I'll say a couple months of the season, being hurt a lot of that time when he wasn't hurt, he wasn't in shape. Luka's back to being that dude, and they're still just okay offensively. And a lot of that is, you know, several guys uh, on the on the team just like, I mean, Porzingis is shooting 28% from three. Right, it's not that he's getting worse shots. He's just not making shots. You know, pretty much almost down the the roster, guys aren't shooting near their uh, career percentages. Hardaway, before he was hurt, was way way down. Um, but they need the so getting to the trade deadline, they recognize, hey, this team needs some more juice offensively, especially with Hardaway out at least. Uh, a few months. They hope he can come back towards the end of the season, but you don't know what he's going to look. You know what he's going to look like when he comes back. They would love to be able to figure out how can they get a little you know, somebody who can create, somebody who can shoot. You know, some uh, another uh, wing score. Now, you know, Zach, I'm sure you've heard all the same things I've heard about, really about Brunson in particular, right? Uh, about hey, are the Mavs are the Mavs shopping Brunson? Do they want to avoid a a pay him or lose him situation this summer? You know all those sorts of things. I have been assured that they will not move Brunson before the trade deadline unless it is uh, and I quote a what the bleep are they thinking type of offer. Like they they recognize moving Brunson. Uh, first of all, it would be difficult to get back anything of significance because he makes so little money right? By NBA standards. So you're going to have to, you know, c- combine him with other salaries, whatever. And, and they just don't have a lot of pieces in that regard to, to come up with something that makes sense. But on a team where one of the big concerns is, man, Luca has to create so much. Is he going to wear down? Did, did he wear down in the fourth quarters last year, even in the playoffs where he was spectacular? Um, it's hard to envision how trading the one other guy who's good at dribbling a basketball <laughs> on that roster would make any sense for a team that's trying to do some damage during, uh, you know, during the season and 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 in a West that still, with all due respect to the Suns, feels pretty wide open. Well, juice is the right word because even now I watch the Mavs and they're playing well and I, Luca's. A genius. I mean, the guy's an absolute killer. I, I've said before. I mean, the Mavs were my pick at the beginning of the year for sort of like if everything goes right, this is this, this is like my my sort of f- off the radar. Like they could actually sneak into the. I said on TV, there's a team in here somewhere that could be a threat to the finals. It, but they just juice is the right word because they never get to the basket. They don't get to the line very much. They are the worst. The worst in terms of volume and efficiency the worst transition team in the league. Like there is just not among good teams. There is no team in more need of like eight easy points a game at the basket. And just the easiest way to get them is by this concept of we don't have to walk the ball up the floor. You're allowed to get a rebound and try to run, like try to dribble as fast as you can to the other end of the floor and have another guy on the floor who can dribble. Like I would even like to see them get another guy, three guys on the floor at once who can dribble because you are allowed when you get a steal to keep going the other direction as fast as you can. Um, 
let's talk about the stuff you've heard about Brunson because mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I've, heard, I've heard competing intel on Brunson's how scared they are that Brunson is going to leave in free agency. Let's put it that way. Yep. There, there are some people who – there are some teams who are, who are telling me, well, the Mavs are, are projecting confidence that Brunson is going to stay. They have the means to, to re-sign Brunson. There's not a lot of cap space teams out yep. there. Is he really going to go to the Pistons or the Spurs? Uh, the Knicks, who are his rumored destination, don't have cap space. The Celtics, who need a point guard, don't have right. cap space. We're not worried about it. Then I hear, well, you know, he's kind of a real flight risk, so I don't know what to believe there. But I, I want to zoom out and, and take it even further. Like, if they pay Brunson and they pay Finney Smith, they're going to be 20-something million into the tax next year. And I, I, I've talked to a couple of – I've talked to a lot of GMs and, and assistant GMs and front office people about the Mavs in the last couple of weeks, and a few of them have brought this up. Like, you, 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 you say, put your – pretend you're the – president of basketball operations in Dallas, what do you do? And a few of them have said, well, if I've got the green light from ownership, what I'm doing is I'm trading Brunson, I'm trading Finney Smith, I'm trying to get picks, and I'm trying to get cap space because if I lock myself into that team, I'm locking myself into a team that's not quite good enough during Luka's early prime. And what I really need is the flexibility, whether through trade or cap space, to get a guy who's a number two that's better than Porzingis, a co-star to come in, and really accelerate us during Luca's early to mid prime. And I might not be able to get that if I forfeit all that cap flexibility to bring back two guys who are good, but how good is this team? And that just goes back to the question of, do they view themselves as just pretty good? Or do they view themselves as like a hot shooting streak and maybe one small upgrade away from being a real threat to the Warriors and the Suns? Like, what do you think of that line of thought of like, take a step back now to take a step forward later? Well, I I would say one really good way to avoid paying the tax is to get to a point where Luca feels like he can't compete here and he's forcing his way out and you no longer have a super max player on your roster. And so I'd be real careful with some sort of, and uh, mass fans hear cap space and they start, I mean, it, 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 I it, it's, it's, it, that's a painful term around here. All right. It's, Darren Williams, he's coming. I mean, keeping the powder dry. Uh, Donnie Nelson is gone, but the, the that phrase still is burned into the minds of, of mass fans. Um, I, 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 I just think that would be way too risky. I think being taken a significant step back would be a mistake. Now, do the Mavs look at this roster and be like, hey, we're good? No, they they recognize it's not a perfect roster. There's flaws. There's they need to upgrade. Uh, you know, they they Porzingis just hasn't proven to be a reliable co-star, all those kind of things. But let me let me tell you this. You re-sign Jalen Brunson, you re-sign Dorian Finney Smith, those guys will have trade value. Right. If you give, you know, let, let's call Brunson, let's say it's four years, 70. When I, when I ask people about Brunson's value, they say the floor is 15 per year. So let's say it's four years, 70. Jalen Brunson would have trade value on that. You know, Dorian Finney Smith, I think the, the floor based on people, the absolute floor is full mid level. Um, you know, let's say he gets four. And if and if your floor is full mid level, you're going to get more than that so call, via signed and trade or being re-signed. Like someone is going to give you more. Call, than that. Let's say he gets four for fifty. Then okay, every good team needs guys like Dorian Finney-Smith. He's one of the premier three and D guys who knows exactly who he is and how he can help a team. Every team would. He is what people thought Robert Covington was. How many first round picks have been traded for Robert Covington? 
<laughs> Dorian Finney's. I get in trouble. I get in trouble with people when I start talking about Robert Covington. So I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to go. I, people, the, 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 the analytics, the real and hardcore analytics people come at me when I talk about how overrated Robert Covington is. Yeah, Dorian Finney-Smith is a guy who legitimately does guard the best player one through four, and sometimes that changes by circumstance when they play a healthy Grizzlies team. He starts out on Desmond Bain because that's the guy who tends to get hot early for them. That's the, the quick start guy for the Grizzlies. If Jackson starts warming up, he'll move over there. Morant tends to dominate the second half. He'll guard Morant in the second half. And he's a you know, 37, 38, 39% three-point shooter on a consistent basis. Dudes like that, if, if he's getting paid in the 10, 12 mil per year range, he's going to have trade. So I say all this to say, I don't think you've got to like dump them when they don't make any money, and you're not going to have. You're, you're not worried about. You're not worried about painting yourself into a corner with those. No, guys. I'm. I'm worried about what the hell happens if you lose them and you don't have legitimate, ready to win right now NBA players for a team that uh, was a maybe the best Kawhi playoff performance in that dude's career away from knocking the Clippers out in the first round of playoffs. Kawhi Leonard in game six in Dallas had maybe the best playoff performance of his career. It's Two a top, without, without researching it, Tim, without researching it, I'm declaring it. It's one of the 10 best playoff games ever played by one human being. I, mean, yeah. I just, I can't imagine that there are 10 better two-way playoff games than what he did. In and that and game. so look, am I sitting here telling you the Mavericks, hey, you know, they would have won the championship. No, but dude, I'm just saying they ain't that far away based on what we've seen with a fully healthy Luka. I feel like Brunson is a better player. Porzingis is, knock on wood, healthier. Um, damn sure happier. <laughs> no doubt about that. Um, you know, I, I, the roster still needs tinkering, no doubt about it. But this, this I know, Jalen Brunson's preference would be to stay in Dallas. He ain't taking a discount to do it, okay? He wants to get paid, period, preferably in Dallas. You know, and I say that, I've, I've asked around about that. I feel like I've got very strong information there um, because I have heard, I'm sure you've heard some of the same, well, you know, hey, does Brunson want, does he want to be, uh, you know, a guy running the show somewhere? Does he kind of want, you know, quote unquote, his own team? Brunson wants to win. This is a, a dude who came in the league as a proven champion. He recognizes he's got a good relationship with Luca. came in in the same draft class. He recognizes what a unique talent this dude is. Brunson has done a very good job of figuring out, hey, how can I play off of Luca? How can I use my skills to really enhance what this guy does, to benefit from what this generational talent does? And then he knows for the 12, 14 minutes per game, maybe 16 minutes per game, where Luca's resting, he is going to be running the show. And then, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith, he he would love to stay in Dallas. You know, he's got a he's got a family he's raised here. This is the fa the the franchise that kind of discovered him, developed him. He also another guy who's who's grown up uh, in the NBA with Luca. These guys want to stay, but they've also got a chance for the first time in their careers to make real bona fide big time NBA money. So, you know, the Mavs will have to pay up. And look. The, the cryptocurrency is going to bounce back. Cuban can afford the luxury tax after not paying it forever. Well, the thing the thing on Brunson is, I I wouldn't mess around too much if I were the Mavs. That's all I'll say. I wouldn't I wouldn't be too cute with the negotiating. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be too I wouldn't be too cute based on what I've heard. Well, especially because they because they already were cute. 
They already work you when they could have put up. My understanding is there was very light discussions about that extension they could have done, which is four years in the mid fifties. And they still can do that up to July 1st, but there's no way in hell Brunson's taking it now. My understanding is it was never firmly offered. Um, Agreed. If it it would have been, I think Brunson would have seriously considered it. It wasn't. Uh, The other thing I, you know, I, I believe based on conversations I've had is the main reason they didn't put it on the table it was because if there was a situation where they could have pounced on a star in the trade market, they didn't want to be handcuffed where they couldn't include Brunson in the deal, knowing he's a guy who other teams would want. I mean, what this really comes down to, and I over and over again, is Porzingis has not been as good as they had hoped. Now, he's had a nice year this year. I yeah. actually think he's had an underrated year. Other than three-point yep. shooting, he's had a nice year. Even his post-up numbers, if you look at the, the tracking data – his shooting numbers out of the post aren't that good, but he's passing it more often. He's getting assists out of the post at a career best rate. And their points per possession when he posts up are actually really good. Yeah. And he does, by the eye test, He there are more possessions where he gets it and he gets rid of it earlier. Like he doesn't just dribble, dribble, dribble. He sees the help coming, bam, it's out. And he's getting um, it deeper. He's, been, he's not getting – when he catches it at 16 or 18 feet and turns around and shoots a – you know. 38% chance of going in mid-range shot. That's that's the stuff that that you know made Rick vomit and 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 made Bob Volgaris, you know, run to to get his laptop. Um that's that's when I make that's when I, I make like <laughs> noises yes. and my wife comes in my office like, Are you okay? Are you vomiting? You know, just Chris Laps Porzingis just took an 18-foot turnaround from the elbow. It's okay. Uh, everything's fine. But no, Porzingis um, when when Porzingis has been healthy this season, last year was just a rough year for him. He came back you know, from that knee injury probably wasn't quite as ready as he should have been. Again, was miserable, felt like Carlisle hated him. The feeling was mutual, so on and so forth. Um, when, when he's been on the floor this year and healthy, he's been very good. Now, you know, when they made the trade for him, the hope was that he would be great. And there's a, you know, that's a, there's a long way from very good to great. Yeah. And, and you can see them as they gain confidence in his defense tiptoeing to playing smaller with him as the only big man on the floor. Sometimes Luca is basically the four. It's like three guards, Luca and Porzingis or three guards, Luca and Kleba, uh, which is, I think the way they have to play. And and one of the reasons like the Doncic Porzingis pick and roll just hasn't been the consistent weapon that they hoped it would be because teams just go small and switch. They put a wing on Porzingis and switch. That gets harder when he's at the five, although the teams will toy with putting their centers on. You've seen him on Bullock lately, yeah. on Josh Green lately. Josh Green's actually been playing okay yeah. lately. I, I, I like him. He's a weird – He's a, he moves in weird patterns and makes weird decisions, but I kind of like well, him. Well, he's, he's, he's an athlete and a, and a crafty passer. If anything, he overpasses. Like there are times I'm like, dude, can you just shoot? Like I know you're just, it's, yeah, it's but creative, shoots, but just, you're, you're like, open. Ah, just, you should have passed that time. <laughs> um. But but I, I you can see them gaining confidence in Porzingis in that sense. The other thing, if I'm the Mavs, that may, maybe I'm even a little better than my record is they're, they've been the worst crunch time team in the league this year. They have the 29th crunch time offense and the 30th crunch time defense. They have all these losses like the the Metu buzzer beater three, the Austin Reeves buzzer beater. Like they've lost I a mean, bunch the, of close the, games. The Magic last night where Maxi got a nice you know I think they missed like the last There's eight another threes. Uh, Maxi got a good look at the end. It just didn't go in. Um, yeah, there there have been a lot of those. Hey, look, the inertia is always the most likely outcome. And I agree with you that 
I, I think they have interesting decisions to make, but that take a step back to take a step forward thing is a tough sell to the fans. It's a tough sell to Luca. It's a tough sell to Luca's agent. Yeah, I'm, to, um, to, to hell with the fans. It's a tough sell to Luca. And like, don't 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 have this these seeds of doubt planted in the Luca's mind. Where three years from now, um, you know, he's got a couple years left on his contract, and he's thinking, man, are we ever going to be able to get out of the first round? Uh. Uh-uh. And and I'll tell you this: as sludgy as they've looked sometimes, and they were fifteen and seventeen, their offense still looks sludgy here and there. You can express skepticism about their defense. My thing about their defense is. I think they're good, but not this good. Yeah. Like I, if you told me the Mavs are like the ninth best defensive team in the league, that feels about right, right based on what I've seen. Uh, zero coaches, zero front offices, zero anythings are excited about the prospect of playing Luka Doncic in a seven-game playoff series. No one is excited about that anymore. Everybody watched those Clippers series like, oh my God. Let's change gears real quickly to a team that's also near and dear to your heart. The Utah Jazz, mm. who are now fourth in the West by a lot. It's not close. The top three are outdistancing them by a lot. Well, they've lost They're 11 to 13. It's hard to keep up when you do that. Four and 12 in their last 16 games. Their defense is 26th over those 16 games. They still have the number one offense in the NBA. Uh, a lot of those games, including the last five or six, have come without both Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, which makes me kind of want to throw them in the trash yeah. can of games because if any team, if Phoenix plays without Chris Paul and Devin Booker and on and on, like you're just not going to win that many games. And and lately, their last two losses have been have looked like a team that's kind of weary to me. But before that, they played uh, Phoenix close a couple of times with their with their backups. They played the Warriors pretty close with with a, with a, their mash unit of a team. Um, but they are four and twelve in their last sixteen games. They are now fourth in the West. Joe Ingles, the news came today, just towards ACL. He hasn't been the same guy this year, but he is a key ingredient in what I call the slow jam lineup, their hybrid bench starter lineup that just kills teams all the time. Well, he's also the leader uh, in that, of that locker room. He's he's beloved in the locker room and and a culture setter for them, a good passer, a great shooter. Um, and just more than that, we talked about this at the beginning of the season, even before the Danny Ainge news came. Just a lot of pressure, yeah. a lot of noise, a lot of change. A lot of Donovan, Rudy, yeah. Quinn, Dennis Lindsay stuff, some of which is true, some of which is not. But sometimes losing just even with all these built-in sort of reasons for it, including missing your two best players, sometimes losing just sort of takes a toll on the atmosphere, on the camaraderie. What are we to make of what's going on with the Jazz right now? Are you worried or are you just dismissing all of this no. as, well, when they get their two best players back, they're awesome? No, I ain't worried. Or I'm not dismissing anything. I'm, I'd am i be worried, yes. Because, look, this is a team that uh, we we kind of thought of as contenders, but they haven't broken through to the point where they've proven that to be true. And it's like, well, they haven't broken through. Uh, you know, this window with all these 30-something guys that Conley, Bogdanovich, you know, unfortunately, we, Joe was in that group. Uh, how much longer is it going to last? There's there, there's the pressure of, uh, hey, is, 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 is Donovan in this thing for the long haul? Is he going to start itching to, to get out? There's, as you know, We've discussed you. You you've discussed. I mean, there's there's been a lot of noise there. Um, you know, they get completely run off the floor without Rudy. Uh, he comes back after his first practice. <laughs> I don't I don't know if this was intentional or not, but you know, he's calling the team out. Hey, you know, we've got to be better defensively. And then 
you know, there's a few follow-up questions. And now after like the third follow-up question, he makes, he brings up Devin Booker as an example. Uh, that guy's playing his ass off. That went over just about as well as you could imagine with, with Donovan Mitchell. Um, you know, there's always kind of the, Hey, how, how, how's that relationship going? Um, you know, that's something um, I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying it's a five alarm fire, but I'm saying like, uh, you know, you get ready to slide down the, the pole if you're at the station. Um, take that for, you know, in the context that it's meant, not anything weird. <laughs> well, they, but, they, but they need to, they need to, this is a team that when they get back together, they need to start stringing some wins together because the noise just, it, these things just have a way of spiraling. Yeah. And if you don't start winning, it all the problems come out, all the fissures get deeper, whatever fissures might exist. And I think there is some tension right now. And you saw Quinn Snyder is not even coaching the because he just got COVID, unfortunately, yeah. get well coach. Um, but look, the, on the other hand, they're plus 15 per 100 possessions when they have Mitchell and Gobert on the floor, just killing teams on both ends of the floor. All the evidence suggests their offense is basically unstoppable. And their defense is really where the question is. And if they have Gobert, their defense is pretty good. Until they see so a good keep... team in the playoffs. And so that, that well, no, I... that was the whole thing. Like, what are they trying to do in the trade market? They're trying to upgrade the perimeter defense, which is a, they're a poor perimeter defensive team that relies on Rudy to clean up messes. And when a team goes five out playing small ball in the second round of the playoffs, even without their superstar, um, you know, they, they get exposed and we've talked about it before. Rudy can't make up and clean up blow buys and then get back out to the corner where his man is. No, it's, it's just not physically possible. And so they, they need, and you know, Ingles was in trade discussions. Um, you know, at this point he's, he's essentially, you know, and unfortunately just a $13 million, uh, won't report, but we can make the salaries work trade chip. I don't know if there's any anything they can do with that. You know, Ingles yeah, and a first round pick was the package that they were going to use to try to get somebody who can shoot threes and play defense. And those somebodies are not easy to get. And I, I, I don't think Joe's injury really impacts their ability to execute that trade for the team on the other end of that trade. That trade was about the pick and salary flexibility more than it was Joe Ingles as a player. And I say that as someone who is a big fan of Joe Ingles as a player. He's a fine basketball player. Yeah. Um, you know, is there something that – can they find something that might make sense to to move Bogdanovich for? He's an awfully big part of that offense. But, again, th this is a team that is I – I think is it's proven they have to be better defensively to, to make a deep playoff run. Forget – you know, th this little stretch in January, it's like everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Has gone wrong. Whole bunch of guys got COVID, including Rudy. You know, now now Quinn. Uh, Rudy strains his calf. Donovan's out with a concussion. You know, so it's just. You know, I think the the concern with this stretch is, hey, how how much soul is being sucked out of the Jazz by losing this? That's much? A, that's, a, that's a very good way to put it. That's exactly it. I think there is concern in Utah. I know there is concern in Utah right now. It's it's almost bizarrely, as you just put it, not about the performance of the team because everyone is confident that we don't have our two best players. When we get them back, we'll be fine. Rudy Gobert is, I've called him before, he's a one-man defensive architecture. We don't give up threes. We don't give up shots at the rim. When he's gone, the architecture crumbles. It, it falls to dust. We'll be fine. But there is a concern of like, it just gets hard to lose a lot, and and it just losing makes people think 
certain things about teammates and coaches and brings out tensions. And I, I think the way you just put it is beautiful. It's just it's just sucking away the soul of the team. They're now fourth by a lot. And interestingly, Tim, you know this very well. If they're fourth and they get out of that 4-5 series, and by the way, that's no cakewalk, whether it's Dallas, Denver, whoever that ends up being on the other side of that series, that's a yeah. good team. You're going to have Phoenix waiting for you. And what you're talking about with Phoenix is maybe not a great like collection of blow-by guys like the Clippers had last year other than Devin Booker. But you are talking about the best mid-range shooting team in the league and two guys who have more than been comfortable shooting 18-footers over Rudy Gobert's drop coverage yep. over and over and over again. And I believe the Suns are undefeated against Utah over the last two seasons. It's just interesting to look and, ahead and, and see. And you're talking about, you might be locked into You're talking that. about the best clutch team in the league and you're talking about an elite defensive team. You know, with, with Bridges in particular, a guy who, you know, uh, you you talk about someone who can defend one through four and be a potential stopper. Bridges is is number one on that list. And and look, I mean, you're talking about four five, the the five and six right now have, have been playing well. The 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 arrow's pointing up for the Mavs and the Nuggets. Uh, you know, I, I I would say that there's legitimate concern that, that the Jazz could fall uh, further down the standings. And I we have both said this before. If they I mean, if they lose in the first round or if they lose in the second round in a disappointing fashion, I think literally everything is on the table short of trading Donovan Mitchell. Everything. Yeah. Short of trading Donovan, I just, I I don't, I mean, that's DEFCON 1 if they lose early, if they lose in those scenarios. Well, and and look, there's a new owner, right, who obviously wants to put his own fingerprints on this. He brought in Danny Ainge, who, you know, you know Danny's, reputation he's he sentiment does not factor into his decision making process i think that is it almost doesn't even the reputation almost doesn't even matter because you can't have sentiment about people who you're not attached to it's not possible there you go that that too and and not only i think is anything on the table this summer but again you, what is the the what is the biggest long term worry for the utah jazz it's whether they can keep Donovan Mitchell for you know throughout his prime, and if if it's another you know thud in the playoffs, man. That, I think I do think they need another defender. I just don't know how they're going to find it. I mean, you can you can find defenders. It's just can they be on the floor offensively? You know, um, but, okay, Kenrich Williams, a, a guy with with Oklahoma City. If you're if you're the Utah Jazz, you know he doesn't make a lot of money. What do you what what are you willing to he's you yeah you, you have to guard him on the three point line he's not going to kill your spacing he's a defender what are you willing to give up there that's that's the thing you go through these names Ingles and a bad first round pick is just not a great it's just not a great trade package like you're going to get outbid for a lot of the better players like don't even talk about Jeremy Grant and Harrison Barnes with yeah. me Kenrich Williams. Look, I'm the captain of Team Kenny Hustle. That guy's the guy's legit good. I was begging teams to trade for him. You probably like that. East, you like that East Dallas Shag hairstyle too, don't you? They call it what do they call it? The Waco Wave. Nah, the Waco they, uh, Wave. Come on, man. Um, I know that's what they called. That's what they called it at TCU. That's what it. they it's named East it. Dallas Shag. That that's what that hairstyle is known as. Trust me. And and I like uh, I like Gary Harris is a, is an interesting fit for them. I just. If, if Oklahoma City can get a first-round pick for Kenrich Williams and if Orlando can get a first-round pick for the expiring contract of Gary Harris, what a home run for those yeah. teams. I think the Jazz would have – that would cause some nausea 
in some stomachs. Those guys are good players. You? you just if, don't if, think if, of like if you're sitting in Danny Ainge's chair, would you? No. Okay. I don't think I would. I don't think I would. What? I'd have to. I'd have to really get some this. great protections on that. Pick. What, what would you give up for Marcus Smart? I might do Ingles in a first for Marcus Smart just because he's younger and more dynamic than those guys. Think about Marcus Smart and the Boston rumors. By the way, there's been Dallas Marcus Smart rumors too. It's like he's like he gets paid twenty one million dollars in twenty twenty six. I I'm just not sure that that's a positive value contract. By the way, going back to Dallas for a second, I meant to ask you, what do you make of the um? Miles Turner, there was the Turner Levert stuff, and then the John Collins noise as well. Like, I, I ask you that, what do you make of that? Because I don't know how they're getting enough, cobbling enough stuff to get those guys. And I don't love Levert, but Turner's good and Collins is good. A- and B, I don't love the Porzingis fit with those yeah. guys. I mean, it's okay offensively because Luca can make anything work offensively, and those guys are both shooters. Defensively, I think it gets tricky. I just don't – I can't really wrap my head around those things unless they're three-team well, trades. Well, Stein has, has, has reported this, and I've, I've heard the same, that the Miles Turner stuff is not something that the, the Mavs are, are pursuing at this point. There there have been discussions, and the Mavs have decided. And I think – Well, that's because he's hurt. Well, I th- it was even before he was hurt. I think it's because the Mavericks have proven that, you know, are they the best defense team in the league like they've been the last month? You know, probably not, but they've proven like they don't, uh, they need offensive juice. They're a good defense team that needs offensive juice. That, that That's kind of the, the outlook there right now. Collins would make a lot of sense, but how? Because I just, I just don't get yeah, it. Yeah. Like, I mean, absolutely. Would John Collins be a nice fit here? Sure. Like, do I think the Hawks could find multiple offers that are more intriguing than whatever the Mavs could come up with? Yeah, 100%. Tim McMahon, we're going to have a lot to talk about over the next week, 10 days away, something like that, from NBA Trade of Palooza 2022. Uh, Your work covering these teams and everyone around the league is just fantastic. You you know lots of people. They tell you lots of stuff. Uh, Is there anything we can, other than your your appearances on the Hoop Collective on Fridays with the two other loudmouths where you make fun of my hair and other things of this nature. Is there anything else we can promote? You got any stories coming out we need to talk about? The Hoop Collective now on YouTube because we all have good hair. Um, Well, I do have. I've got a... Boy, oh boy. (laughs) Boy, oh boy. You know, Wendy uses all that product, which I question, but hey. He, 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 Wendy, I'll say this. Wendy was a lot cooler when he was a do-it-yourself buzz cut guy when he was in my club. Now he's all foo-foo, but I still like the guy. Um, I've got a story hopefully coming out on Wednesday about the young, fun, bleep-talking Memphis Grizzlies. They are, I mean, it's like every Grizzlies game, you are guaranteed 90 seconds. And this doesn't sound like much, but it's a lot because you're always hoping for it. You never know what's going to happen. 90 seconds where you're like, did a Globetrotters game just break out? What in the did they bring out the guys who dunk off trampolines and pass the ball to each other off the what the hell just uh, John, happened? John it's Moran's incredible. Like one of those dudes on a video game where there's always a trampoline underneath him. John Morant may be the most when was when Steph's not shooting it well, John Morant's the most fun player in the league to watch. He is an absolute show, and as you said, they have a spirit about them that is just irresistible. You could not you could not help but fall in love with the Grizzlies. They puff their chests out. They talk junk to everybody. Uh, unless you're and a they veteran, are not. and then you get all pissed off about them, and there's a lot of that in this story. Hey, you know what? 
You know what? Like LeBron, that was the high profile when LeBron was telling them to stop stop talking. By the way, when the Grizzlies are beating their ass by a million points, you know what you can do if you're a veteran? Beat them. Well, beat them. You want to shut them up? Beat them. They're third in the West. They're a legit, really good team. They should absolutely talk their shit because that's what good teams do. They uh, that that is featured prominently in this story, and I'll just say that the Grizzlies were not exactly apologetic. Nor should they be, because the, this LeBron was treating them. Not, I don't know how LeBron. Was, I just, it, it was grumpy the, Uncle the, LeBron, is what it was. He was getting the, his butt the people kicked. Who are grumpy grump, Uncle, Uncle LeBron. The people who are grumpy about them are are, are sometimes as if look at them as if they're like a team that's talking above their place in the league. The Grizzlies are not. The Grizzlies are like we're as good as any team in the league, and we just proved it over well, and over and, again. And the, and the counterpoint is. You haven't proved nothing. You've proven nothing in the playoffs. And Grizzlies' response is basically like, cool. Wait. Just wait. Everyone look for that on Wednesday. Tim McMahon, thank you for your time, bud. I will hopefully see you at an arena soon enough. Sounds good. Appreciate it, Zach. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater events near you with killer last-minute deals, all-in prices, views from your seat, and their best price guarantee. Game time takes the guesswork out of buying tickets. Game time is the only ticketing app that gives you complete peace of mind with your purchase. See the view from your seat before you buy so you know exactly what to expect when you arrive. All-in prices show you the total up front so you know you're getting a great deal before you check out. Buy in seconds with two taps. They're obsessed, Game Time is, with finding ways to help you save money on tickets. Find exclusive flash deals and sponsor deals on tickets for football, basketball. We like basketball here. Baseball, concerts, comedy, theater, and more. Take the guesswork out of buying tickets with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use the code LOW, my last name, the name of this podcast, for $20 off your first purchase. That's a nice chunk of change. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code L-O-W-E for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets. Lowest price guaranteed.